0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangerang, Wurundjeri, and Woiwurrung country of the Kulin Nation. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and today is Tuesday, the fifteenth of March, twenty twenty-two. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible. And as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy, to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. But right now, we're going to zoom down to Melbourne, Australia, to speak with a phenomenal astrophysicist and author, Associate Professor Duane Harmarker. Hello, Duane. Hi, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thank you. And- Today, I am so pleased to be speaking with Associate Professor Dwayne Hamaker, who is based in the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne and is part of the ARC Centre of Excellence for All-Sky Astrophysics in 3D. And with Ellen and Unwin, he's just published an amazing book called The First Astronomers, How Indigenous Elders Read the Stars, which... He co-authored with six First Nation elders and knowledge holders, including Ewilla a senior lawman, Gillar Michael Anderson, who is the only surviving member who set up the original Aboriginal Tent Embassy outside Parliament in Canberra, which still proudly stands today, 50 years later. Thanks so much for speaking with us, Duane. Thank you for having me on, Brendan. Excellent. Okay. So... Before we talk about your research programs and this awesome newly released books, you sent me a digital copy, and it's just a, a beautiful book. Can you tell us where you grew up, please, Duane, and tell us how you became inspired by science and culture in the first place? I think I've been one of those geeky science kids who grew up into a geeky
1: science adult. I was born and raised in mid-Missouri, right in the middle of the U.S., Back in the late 70s, my how time does fly. I just grew up, as long as I can remember, I've always had a fascination with science and in particular astronomy. And when I was a kid, I also was fascinated by things like archeology span as well. And growing up in a rural area, I mean, I think the town I grew up in, I'm not even sure what our population was, about 50 people, if you want to call that. You know, I went to a tiny high school where my graduating class was about 30 people. And, uh, you know, growing up all those years living out in the country, I just had this deep passion for astronomy and science, but also for the social sciences. But I think my true love was really in the sciences. And I loved stars and dinosaurs as a kid, and that passion never really left. I just had to make a, I had to make a decision. I couldn't, you know, dig for dinosaurs and other planets as far as I knew. So I had to focus on the astronomy side of things. And you know, as I as I got older, my interests started to converge back into that crossroads between
0: astronomy and the social sciences, which is where I find myself today. Fantastic. So tell us a little about those school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change? Well, the school
1: I went to, I went from kindergarten through year 12 all the way through. And I always had that same passion for astronomy. In fact, I think my kindergarten teacher said I was going to be a future scientist, either a paleontologist or an astronomer. And I remember years ago, my mother, you know, who had kept all these things from when I was a a kid, you know, assignments and posters and teachers reviews and everything from when I was in kindergarten. I remember seeing one of those saying that. I thought, well, you can see my passions never really changed all those years down the road. I think there were numerous times where, you know, growing up in a very low socioeconomic environment, it was certainly a situation where my later teens, I never thought that I would have the chance or opportunity to become an astronomer. And when I would ask teachers, you know, what do I study in university? Most of them had no idea. I did have a biology teacher and, you know, she recommended studying physics. And um, she was really phenomenal at, you know, just sort of putting me in the right direction. And for a long time, it seems, you know, when you grow up in these low-income, relatively poor rural environments, it feels a bit like a black hole. It's very hard to get out of those environments. And to go on and pursue a career path studying astronomy just seemed a bit ridiculous. But I stuck with it, and
0: it all worked out. Fantastic. So after that successful school career and an inspiring teacher, you completed your first degree majoring in physics, no surprises there, with an emphasis on astrophysics and archaeology at the University of Missouri, Columbia. Then you moved down to Sydney, Australia to do your master's degree by research. And I looked up your thesis. It was called a search for transiting extrasolar planets from the Southern Hemisphere. And then you were awarded your doctorate in cultural astronomy at Macquarie University for your thesis on the astronomical knowledge and traditions of Aboriginal Australians. Would you like to give us that backstory on that big move from the US down to Oz, please, Duane? Going to university was a bit of a challenge because we weren't really
1: prepared very well to go and study anything other than, well, I certainly wasn't able to go and study physics. I never took physics in high school or anything of that nature. Uh, Never took anything beyond maybe a second year of algebra or even first year geometry. So it took me a number of years to complete my undergrad. And of course, in the US, we do quite broad degrees. I think when I added it all up, I took 60 courses from my undergraduate degree between two universities. Um, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. And, you know, I, I did a bunch of courses in, in anthropology as well. And in the U.S., anthropology includes archaeology and linguistics. And I just got really excited about that particular area. And when I had the opportunity... I came to Australia for a semester abroad, and I studied at Macquarie University in Sydney. And that was the most amazing experience of my life. I was much older than everybody else at that point. I was 25 by the time I was able to do that. It took me just over eight years to get my undergraduate degree, because I kind of had to redo high school and university to get to that point where I could really do a physics degree. I kind of was really starting off like I was in year nine. But when I came to Macquarie, I really had the great greatest time ever. And something happened there that I talk about in the book that put me on the path to where I am today. And it was 2003, August, and Mars was at its closest approach to the earth in something like 60,000 years. So we're pretty excited to be able to go see that at the local campus observatory. So I went over there with another one of the study abroad students from who was from Indiana. So she and I walked over and, you know, I was doing upper level astrophysics courses at the university at that time and was chatting with one of the people running the telescope. And I asked about Aboriginal views of the sky because I knew absolutely nothing about that whatsoever. And the response I got, I won't go into detail, but let's just say it was extremely dismissive and they made a comment that was vile and it stuck with me forever. Woman, I was with the other student, we sort of looked at each other, our eyes just kind of connected and we're like, what did they just say? Like, it was really bad. And we sort of like walked away slowly smiling, like, let's get, let's get out of here. You know, that was really, really bizarre. And it was a really bad experience and an otherwise amazing experience of coming to Australia. But it was the first time that I got a real personal view of what people had been telling me about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I went. I fell in love with Australia. I went back to the U.S. and finished my degree. And then I, I just wanted to come back so desperately bad. I knew that my chances of, of doing what I wanted in life would probably be met if I came to Australia. And I moved down as soon as I could. So Valentine's Day of 2006, I moved to do, I was actually doing a Ph.D. in astrophysics at UNSW. But I got really interested in that connection between astronomy and culture. And I kept thinking about that question, you know, what type of knowledge do Aboriginal people have about the stars? And whenever I'd ask other people, they just give me this sort of dismissive response. And I thought, well, that can't be right. And I started looking into it. It didn't take very long. It didn't take very much digging at all to see how much science is encoded in these traditions. And then I just made the decision, look, I want to do that for a career. So I wrapped up my research with a master's degree at UNSW, and then went to Macquarie University and enrolled in the Department of Indigenous Studies. And that's where I completed my doctorate.
0: And since then, you've done astonishing work. Look, it must be wonderful to be nurturing, as well as your actual academic career and your research career. It must be wonderful to be nurturing that next generation of Indigenous astronomers and broadening the general knowledge base for all astronomers. So you've got a lot of influence. And we can give a big shout out now to Kirsten Banks and Carly Noon from episodes 53 and 99, respectively. And most recently in episode 142, we had Crystal de Napoli on and she was singing your praises, Dwayne, In turn, could you tell us about some of the people who have inspired and supported your scholarly journey and who are you working with now?
1: There have been a lot of fantastic people I've been very fortunate and honoured to have worked with. In this particular space, I began working with Ray Norris, who is the CSIRO astrophysicist. He was the one who was really excited about, you know, helping to supervise a project in this space and he was always extremely supportive and that really took off. And my other advisors that I had were, were also phenomenal. Christina Everett and the late John Clegg and, and Michelle Trudgett were all fantastic. You know, we, we came from such different backgrounds that it could be a challenge trying to figure out what questions to ask, but it was really a great way to, to bring this, this stuff together to try to figure things out in this space. But the other people who really have been mentors for me above and beyond, the first was a Darawal elder named Les Bursal. And Les was just one of the most friendly human beings I ever met. And he invited me to his house one day, and we sat and talked for about four or five hours. And he was very generous in sort of mentoring me over my Ph.D., teaching me about Aboriginal culture, taking me to various important sites, especially rock art sites in Southern Sydney, and just being a general advocate and supporter for a number of years. And, you know, he he passed away in early 2019, and I was very fortunate to be able to visit him in hospital down in, I think he was in Nowra, the day before he passed. And I told him about this book, and and he was really excited about that. And yeah, the next day he passed, And, and he and his family were supportive of this, and they allowed, you know, of course, to to continue using his name and things of that nature. So he was probably one of the first elders, or he was the first elder that I really had tremendous support from. The next person, of course, was Professor Martin Nakata. He's the whole reason I have a job, a career. He's largely reason for this, this area even existing. And he he gave me a call when I was just finished my PhD and I was sort of desperately looking for a job And he says, You wanna wanna meet up and chat about stuff? I was like, Yeah, okay, sure. And he met up with me at a Thai restaurant in Sydney. And after the great, at the end of a long conversation, he asked me if I wanted a job. And I was like, Absolutely. And he sat down with me and we sort of planned out and strategized the next decade of this work and this research. And this book was one of the major outcomes we had been pushing for for a number of years. So Martin Nakata is a Torres Strait Islander and academic. He right now is the uh, Deputy Vice Chancellor Indigenous at James Cook University, and he's the first Torres Strait Islander to earn a PhD in Australia. So he's been quite phenomenal. And I've had a number of other elders over the years, especially the Torres Strait. Um, big shout out to Uncle Topham, Uncle Sigar Passi, and Uncle Rondé, all of whom are co-authors in this book, as are Gillard Michael Anderson. John Barsa, and David Bozen. They've all been phenomenal. And most recently, Marcia Langton, here at the University of Melbourne, has been phenomenal in in supporting this work and supporting me, ensuring that we can get all this work up and out to the public. Um, And they've been phenomenal. They've really been phenomenal.
0: Fantastic. That sounds like a, a wonderful bunch of people to be working with now. Just before we get a little peek into the content of the first astronomers, first, thanks for sending me that digital preview copy. It really is fantastic and it's full of all of these amazing stories. I've put in my order for the hard copy and it's been an epic adventure for you. Now, look, I'm not going to ask you to summarize 14 years of work and four years of actual writing, but Could you tell us a little bit about the writing and research for this beautiful book, please, Dwayne?
1: Well, I think I probably could summarize it, As strange as it may sound. I think the number one thing to take away from the book in the end is that Indigenous traditions contain science. That really, at the end of the day, is what this book is about. And I go through systematically and show that chapter by chapter by chapter, in all kinds of different areas. The the writing process started years ago. You know, it goes really back to when I first sat in a room with Professor Martin Nakata, and and he sort of laid out this timeline for like the next 10 years. He was putting out these big marker points, the major things that I need to achieve in order for this work to get done. And yes, it was very generous of him to help me plan out my career path but it wasn't just about me or my career path it was about the work and it was about ensuring that this work would continue that it would make the the impacts that it is making today finally and that it would be sustainable into the future and this book was one of those one of those outcomes and I started it probably almost five years ago I started writing this book and of course the chapters weren't written in the order they appear in the book by any means in fact the chapters on twinkling stars and variable stars, I had written back in 2017. At least I drafted them. And over the years, it's it's been quite a struggle, actually. It's writing a book like this, a, a trade book or a popular book for the general public, is completely different from writing academic papers. Yep. And it's actually a lot more difficult for me and a lot of academics to write these kinds of books than it is to write academic papers. Because It's important that we get across these complex ideas to the public without dumbing them down because people aren't stupid, but without making them too technical because not everybody has a PhD in this area. So how do you do that? How do you put in all of your anecdotes and experiences that link things together and do so in a way that's going to keep people engaged and keep them exciting without making too many mistakes? And since I got a paper copy of the book, I found a few. It's inevitable. But it's really been a process and the last couple of years have been the most intense because you know an academic job uh, I think we had this myth when I was growing up that professors had this really wonderful position and we just spent half the day drinking wine and chatting and stuff I don't know what universe that came from that is no reflection of academia whatsoever it's an incredibly stressful kind of job where the weight and workload just gets worse and worse over time. So I love what I do, don't get me wrong, but it becomes more and more difficult, especially as you go up the academic ranks, to find the time to even be able to write. So for the last two years, pretty much every weekend, every evening, every holiday was just writing, writing, writing. And it was extremely intensive. And the, the amount of stress was overwhelming I'm you know it's just important that for me that I recognize that because I thought that I'd never write a book again I've already got two more books in queue so it's I think it's just that first initial hump getting over this experience is going to make the next ones a lot more fun and a lot easier.
0: can earlier today you were preparing your first lecture for this year will that be a face-to-face one or has it happened already um how's that how's that going?
1: Well, as of us recording this, being the 28th of February, this is the very start of the semester, so I just gave my very first lecture at 9 a.m., so it was great to be able to see all the students face-to-face. Only about a third of them came in person, but there were still, you know, a fair few there, and yeah, it's, it's great to see faces and connect, and that, that course I'm teaching is Indigenous Astronomy, and we bring in some of the elders that I've spoken about, and who've endorsed the book and you know they're, they're heavily involved in all of this work and research. So it's gonna be a great experience for the students to learn about this knowledge, but also to hear directly from the elders themselves.
0: Fantastic. Now we want everyone to get a copy of the first astronomers and to see it in every library. And it's already out there in Audible as an audio book and in everyone's bookshop. And we won't fill this podcast with too many spoilers, but I would like to open your book up with the prologue and to quote the very first sentence. Here it is. The first astronomers challenges commonly held views that indigenous ways of knowing do not contain science, as you mentioned. Having read the book now, I would change that first sentence to, the first astronomers demolishes commonly held views that indigenous ways of knowing do not contain science. And one can only hope that that person who spoke so dismissively of Indigenous astronomy, gets to read your book and understand 60,000 years of astronomical knowledge.
1: Yeah, I hope that's the case. And, you know, it's easy to be angry and point fingers. But at the end of the day, if people are raised in a society where those views are are held so commonly, I, I really hope something like this can be a learning experience. I've certainly had Plenty of learning experiences in my life, and there have been a number of times, you know, said stupid things or held views that were were wrong, and that's part of growing and maturing. So I really hope that this book helps people understand that these layers of knowledge contain a pretty substantial scientific component. There's a tremendous amount we can learn from that. The elders are teaching us about that. There are ways that these systems of knowledge, indigenous and Western scientific can come together and come up with new innovative solutions to research and and facing some of the challenges that we're having today. And I think it's important that people understand that. I think it's important that we recognize that the history and philosophy of science needs some updating because a lot of the so-called discoveries of Western science were actually made long before by indigenous people. That isn't meant to, you know, to trash Western science. I mean, scientists do a lot of great things. There's no question about that. I'm not meaning to diminish or marginalize what they've done. But I think it's important in the grand scheme of things for us to understand that ancient cultures and contemporary indigenous cultures have all this knowledge of the stars that has been developed over thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands of years. We need to acknowledge that, we need to respect that, and we need to work and collaborate with those elders and those communities to bring this knowledge to the forefront whenever that's possible.
0: Exactly. And I think it's also as a as an offshoot, as a response, it will definitely help build more respect for Indigenous communities. Now, I love, especially in the book, the connection between Indigenous astronomy and the Marbo decision. And the Marbo decision, I think, is one of the best things to ever happen in this country. Now, given that we have a lot of listeners who subscribe to Astrophys, they're mainly from the US, from Australia, UK, Canada, Germany, India, Netherlands, Italy, Japan, and Spain. They're our main listening groups, and obviously. Most of those will not know about Marbo or how this decision was enabled by Indigenous astronomical knowledge. Could you give us some basics on that connection between Marbo and Indigenous astronomy, please, Duane?
1: Long before the British came, Australia had been obviously inhabited for tens of thousands of years, but the British weren't the first Europeans to come. Tasman, Torres, uh, the Dutch, they'd all been here. But when the British first came, which, of course, is the famous voyage by Cook after observing the transit of Venus, trying to find what they considered to be the Great South Land, which they believed was a giant continent in the bottom of the Earth, which they were right, it did exist. It was just Antarctica. They didn't go far enough south to find it they had sealed orders um, after that transit to go search for this great south land. And when they couldn't find it, they went off to New Zealand and then to Australia. And when the British came to Australia, they enacted this legal fiction called terra nullius, which means it's a land belonging to no one. And even though there were obviously people here, the argument for them was that, well, they don't actually own any land, they're nomadic, so they have no claim over any land, so therefore, we can plant a flag and claim it and it's all ours. And that was the legal structure of colonizing Australia. And that lasted all the way up until, you know, the latter part of the 20th century. And there was a, a Merriam man. So Merriam are the people of Mare in the far Eastern Torres Strait, that small island of about four square kilometers, two little islands off the coast called Dawar and Wair collectively known today as the Murray Islands, but his name was Edward Koyki And he was actually working at James Cook University in Townsville and found out that he actually had no right to his land. He didn't even know this. We're talking like the 1970s, I think. Actually, his people had no legal right to their land. Like No indigenous people had any legal right to their land because of this idea of terra nullius. So he and a few others filed this legal case, which went on for a very long time. In fact, he passed away just months before it was approved. Now it's called the Mabo case, and that set the pathway for native title and indigenous rights ownership of land. Even though that went through in 1992, I believe is when that was, that didn't extend to commercial sea rights. So the Torres Strait Islanders, which is The other two main indigenous groups in Australia, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders. The Torres Strait Islanders didn't have any commercial rights to their fishing and they wanted to fight this battle in court. Now, this was going on in the early 2000s. And what the government lawyers were saying is that, oh, well, all the different cultures on these different islands were separate little enclaves with little or no connection to each other, therefore. The idea that they were interconnected and needed that commercial sea rights with each other was another legal fiction. But the islanders, of course, were like, well, of course, we've had connections with these other islands. We've had them for you know millennia. Yep. But what they had to do is they had to prove it. And one of the ways they proved it was a traditional kabkar or very sacred song and dance called Gedge Togia. Gedge Togia is a moon dance. And the lyrics are in two different languages, one of Mare in the Eastern Torres Strait and a dialect of, called Mabyog in the Western Torres Strait. And the song, the lyrics are Gedge, Togia, Milpanuka, just those three words. And basically it means moon rising over home. Yep. And if you look on a map, those two islands are about 200 kilometers east-west of each other. And it showed interconnected trade and family connections between those two islands. And Uncle Alo Tapim said that a judge came to the island and they had him all hooked up with microphones and they performed the dance, sang the song, and he explained what everything meant. Long story short, they won their battle for commercial sea rights. And one of the main pieces of evidence was this moon dance.
0: Yep. Fantastic. And it's, you know, had a huge impact on Australia's development since then. Now, I also really enjoyed reading your story about when you were observing the Saturn-Jupiter conjunction from Yay. And I'm about 100 kilometres northeast of Yay as the crow flies. I'm on Yorta Yorta and Pangarang country. And we did exactly the same thing here on my little farmlet in December 2020. And then to read about how many ancient observations in your book of different planetary conjunctions are recorded in First Nations traditions. It's simply fantastic. Now, Dwayne, would it be too much of a spoiler for you to tell our listeners a little about those conjunction observations?
1: I actually talk about those in a couple of different chapters, which is interesting, but that particular one... I found fascinating because there's a very similar tradition in Ewaldi country up where Uncle Gillar, Michael Anderson is from. So again, Uncle Gillar, Michael Anderson is a senior Ewaldi lawman. He worked as a lawyer and he is a treasure trove of traditional star knowledge. And he explained how there were different communities between Northern New South Wales and, and Southeastern Queensland, South Central Queensland where they would come together for a special ceremony and they would each bring two different stones one was a red stone and one was a sort of bluish green opal yep. and when they brought those together through their specific song lines that were mapped out in the stars that ceremony represented uh the eyes of a creation figure and this was a conjunction of planets and it was only you know, a very special time that would take place. And as I began learning more about this type of phenomenon, you know, doing a little bit more research and learning more from different elders, I found out how commonplace it is to have these kinds of traditions about either two planets coming together or a planet and a particular star or a star cluster coming together. There's one thing, I won't give a spoiler away about what it means, but there's a great place in the book to go check out that explains a very common motif about the seven sisters, the Pleiades and the missing sister. So go in that book and see if you can find that little gem. That's something I only learned as I was writing that chapter. And that was something that was quite exciting. Um, That was coming from Dr. Noel Nanup, who's a Noongar elder in Western Australia. Yep.
0: Fantastic. Now, we also like to include in every episode a bit of propeller head stuff. So our listeners can put their propeller hats on for a couple of minutes. Would you like to talk us through, and I loved reading this in your book, the Russell McFerrin effect, and then tell us how those links between droughts and auroras have been observed and identified by Western science, how they've been observed for eons in indigenous astronomy. The
1: Russell McFerrin effect is something I only learned about myself about the middle of last year. And it's really interesting. So the way it works is that the traditional elders would talk about how Aurora would appear more frequently around the equinoxes. So around the, you know, late March or late September uh, into early October. And for a long time, you know, trying to figure out, well, why is this the case? And, and in particular in Southern Sydney, a elder named Auntie Fran Bodkin talks about how there's this longer term cycle, I think it's called the Mudong cycle. And one of the things about the cycle is that it's signaled by the appearance of aurora towards the South and Southwest. And then that it occurs about every decade or so. And Really that they appear more frequently and more intensely around the equinoxes and in particular, as she noted, around the equinox in September. So what was that? I was trying to figure out, okay, well, what does this mean? This is me trying to understand the science behind what she's talking about. So she's talking about this and I'm going in trying to figure out, well, what's the science here? And that's why I learned about the Russell McFerrin effect. So what it is, Russell McFerrin effect is named after two scientists, two geophysicists, Russell and McFerrin. Back in the 1970s, I think about 73, they published a paper that explains why this effect takes place. And what it is, is you've got the interplanetary magnetic field. This is the magnetic field of the sun that gets pushed out into space by solar wind. And of course, the earth has its own magnetic field. And the Earth being tilted on its axis by about 23.5 degrees means that when the equatorial plane and the plane of the ecliptic cross over, that's when we have the equinoxes. Well, it just happens to be that that solar or that interplanetary magnetic field from the sun and the countering magnetic field from the Earth kind of cancel each other out a bit. Not completely but they largely start to cancel each other out. And when all those charged particles from the sun start coming in, they're not getting you know, blown away by the magnetosphere of the earth. They're sort of getting channeled down to the auroral zones, but a lot more of those particles are able to get in than other times of the year. Yes. so when that happens, you have more intense particles hitting, they ionize and cause the aurora. So you get more intense and more frequent auroras around the equinoxes than you do at other times of the year because of that weird cancellation effect between the Earth's
0: magnetic field and the interplanetary magnetic field. Fantastic. And we've got an equinox coming up in a few weeks. So I'm looking forward to that, Twain. Look, you mentioned, you know, your lecturers are now face-to-face and right now COVID-19 is still having a huge effect worldwide. How has it impacted on your research? It's been quite quite a challenge actually
1: because research-wise, it's important that I'm getting out and, and working with and for the communities and going to the different sites and meeting the elders. And COVID just put a big X on the whole thing for the last two years. I haven't been able to go to any of the communities or go any place, meet anybody. And when I've been able to get a little, little bit of funding to get some projects going, it just had to be delayed over and over and over. So a lot of things got put on hold. And you might think, well, okay, that's going out and doing that kind of research, but what about writing at home? Well, COVID didn't really help that out because the teaching we've had to do, the workload involved in that just skyrocketed trying to do it online because most universities aren't really built for doing online teaching. There's only a few who've really invested their time and energy into that. So it's been a challenge, especially when you're teaching things like physics. How do you teach physics online when you're at home and you don't have a marker board? You know, you don't have a lot of the tech that would be really useful to do a proper video for the students. So you've got to try to work your way around that. And, you know, that... Workload and that weight of trying to manage all that and not being able to go anywhere meant that research took a big hit. And even writing this book took a big hit because it should have been done about a year ago at least. But, you know, I'm just glad that we seem to be coming through it. Um, I'm glad the book is out and that in the coming months, we're going to be able to hopefully start getting some projects up and running again and be able to get our momentum built back up.
0: You know, hopefully it's diminishing a bit. Now, this is a good segue from what you've just been speaking about. You do a lot of outreach work. You get out there and you've worked on National Geographic films with Morgan Freeman, Werner Herzog and a Warwick Thornton film. And you give TEDx presentations. You have a lot of stuff on YouTube, radio, television, web talks. You quoted in articles in a huge range of publications. I saw one there that had millions of reads. So can you tell us why outreach is so important for you?
1: I can't imagine anything more important in this work than educating the public. When it comes to specific aspects of the star knowledge, that's entirely up to the elders, how much they want to share and what they want to share. So... When I talk about this, I'm referring to the knowledge the elders have been happy to share and they want in the public domain. So when we're doing this work, it is so important that the public knows the science behind this, so they gain a better appreciation for it. I don't see any real point in putting things in academic journals that get a huge page charge that maybe a few other academics might read. I just don't see a point in that. I mean, I've done it because I have to, Although I try to focus publishing research and open access journals where you know elders who share their knowledge with me don't have to turn around and pay money to read a publication about their work. That seems a bit absurd or any community member for that matter. But I think that outreach is just so critically important because how else are we going to get people to change their attitudes and change their minds? The narrative in the media and with the public about indigenous issues is so negative and it's unnecessary, completely unnecessary, and in many cases, complete and totally wrong. So, what we need to do is change the narrative. And astronomy being a topic of extreme fascination among the public and being something that is seen as sort of an ultimate, you know, intellectual pursuit. You know, you're talking to people and you say you're an astrophysicist. Ooh, wow, okay, that's pretty impressive. Even more so than maybe other areas, you know, I'm not saying there's necessarily reality behind that, but that's a public perception. So indigenous astronomy or, or combining indigenous cultures with astronomy is a great way to get the people to engage in something positive And to show them that there is much to learn from this, that these systems of knowledge are incredibly complex, they're incredibly detailed. And they're not just what people think of as myths and legends, there's huge systems of science here and it's far more complicated than most anybody realizes or dares to even recognize. That is the whole reason that we're doing this and it's about elevating the voices of those elders. It's about elevating the new generation of Aboriginal astrophysicists like Kristen, Carly and Kirsten and supporting the work in that area so we can get this out to the public and change the perception and
0: change the narrative. Fantastic. It's an awesome job you're doing. Now, the book is done and dusted. 14 years of work has now been on the shelf for two weeks. It came out on the 1st of March, and it's easily bought online from anywhere in the world. The audio book is out, and all the profits are going to charities for scholarships and for community projects and educational programs for First Nations people. So what's next for you? Well, there's still so much work that has to be done. We could
1: keep working on this for years, and that's the plan. But for me, something else has come up, and I'm going on sabbatical at the end of this year in October to the University of Heidelberg in Germany where I'm gonna be at the Kate Hamburger Center for Apocalyptic and Post-Apocalyptic Studies. Wow, I'm going to Good spend. <laughs> I'm gonna spend 10 months looking at the role of meteorite impacts and the end of the world. And that's been a topic within my research here in Australia for a long time. And the last chapter of the book talks about that. Meteorite impacts all over Australia, airbursts, comets, all that kind of stuff. I'm gonna spend 10 months focusing on that and writing a book. And I've got another exciting book on an extremely famous Australian constellation that hopefully will be coming out the year after that. I'm writing with a colleague who did his PhD in the history of astronomy. So those are two major things we have coming up and there's always about a billion and one things in the queue. So it's looking to be a pretty exciting next year
0: and next decade. Awesome, that's so fantastic. Right now, the mic's all yours and you've got the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or in the lack of diversity and opportunity in science communities in outreach or science denialism or science career paths or your own passion for Indigenous research or our long human quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours.
1: Well, we're going to be here for a long time. (laughs) There's so many, so many things that would be phenomenal to talk about. I, I really do want to give a shout out to the elders and the academics who've been supporting this work for years. I want to give a shout out to the next generation of Aboriginal astrophysicists and First Nations astronomers from around the world, in particular people like Dr. Annette Lee, who is a Lakota astrophysicist and artist who now works at Arizona State University to Professor Rangi Matamua and Dr. Pauline Harris, who were both Maori astronomers over in Aotearoa in New Zealand. There's so many people to thank. And um, and also recognize Dr. Stacey Mader. Uh, He is a Gijaman man and Australia's first PhD qualified astrophysicist. He works for the CSIRO out at the Parkes Radio Telescope. And he got his PhD, I think he was in 2000. So for over 20 years, he's been the first and only PhD qualified astrophysicist in Australia who's Aboriginal. And of course, that uh, is a serious, I mean, it's great that he's there, but it's a serious problem that he's the only one, especially when you consider that Aboriginal people are Australia's first astronomers. They're traditional astronomers, the Torres Strait, they're called the Zugabo Mabaig, lots of different names for people in those cultures, in those societies, whose traditional job is exactly that of an astronomer. But you know we now have a whole new generation. And, and the three that I talked about before, Kirsten, Carly, and Crystal, aren't the only ones. We've got Pete Swanton, who is a Euwala Rega man. He's now doing his master's degree at A&U. Brad Tucker and myself are supervising him in his project, and he's looking at indigenous astronomy and dark skies. Peter Reeve is a Rangu man who f- did a degree in physics at University of Adelaide, and he now is working for the BLM, the Bureau of Meteorology. There are others who are working in this space who maybe come from non-astronomy backgrounds, maybe ecology or other areas like that, but who are also working in the space of indigenous astronomy. So there's a whole new exploding generation. It's hard for me to even keep track of everybody who's working in this space. They're the faces of this work. They're the ones who are coming out and carving out career paths and doing some phenomenal work. But it's still really important for me and and my other colleagues, especially the non-Indigenous colleagues to to help do whatever we can to help with the workload, to help get this work out there, uh, to help carry some of this weight so we can ensure that there's a whole new generation of Indigenous and First Nations astronomers who are to be taking over this space in the coming years. And I think that it's important that we have the support from within the universities, from within the communities and from within the public to ensure that this can happen, not just in Australia, but around the world. And I'm seeing more and more particularly in Turtle Island, which is the Canada, Canada and the US, where there's a rapidly growing number of First Nations, indigenous and black astronomers and astrophysicists, and space scientists all across the board who are now knocking out degrees and becoming huge profiles. And it's really fantastic to see that and, you know, Changing the narrative in Australia to get away from this negative view to something genuine, honest, and positive is the most important thing. And I think if we can all take a step back, especially those of us who are scientists and we come from our hard, rigid science backgrounds, we need to stop thinking about these traditional ways of knowing as myths and legends. And I hope this book can help people understand that indigenous science and Western science are not the same thing. There's a huge crossover between the two, but they work Yes. In similar, but still different ways because they're answering different questions. That doesn't mean that they're not valid. They're not important. Of course, they're valid. And of course, they're important. And there's much we can learn from that if we open up our eyes and we open up our ears and we listen.
0: Exactly. Two sides of the same coin. And it's great to see that respect growing as well. And your book's certainly going to help with that. Over the last 18 months, you mentioned parks earlier. It was great to see that the Parks Telescope now has an official Indigenous name. It's now called Murrayang, which is just wonderful. And I oh, look back to your book. All the reviewers are saying very nice things about it. The first astronomers, how Indigenous elders read the stars, and up in Canberra, physics Nobel laureate Brian Schmidt summed it up very succinctly. He simply said, a groundbreaking book of enormous scope. And first up, from your point of view, how's the response been pre-release of a book? And to finish up, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future in the world of Indigenous astronomy? What are you keeping your eye on, Duane?
1: The response of the book so far has been extremely positive. Um, it's been, at times, deeply emotional to you know see the words written by people that you know so highly respect and honor. There's also on the flip side been a bit of suspicion because I think there's been a long history of non-Indigenous people writing about Indigenous issues, and, and people today are rightly a bit anxious and nervous about that. In some cases, they they're questioning why that's the case, but. You know, I didn't write this book necessarily to a specific audience, but I think in mine, I was kind of considering more of the non-indigenous audience saying, you guys need to knock it off. Look, there's science here. This is how, these are the elders talking. Let's put them first and foremost. Here's the platform. Here's the knowledge behind that. So I don't spend too much time in the book trying to retell stories. Uh, in a few cases, I'll give an abridged version so we can unpack the science behind it. But I certainly hope that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and First Nations people, Indigenous people from around the world, I hope that they like it and that, you know, things can be learned cross-culturally as well. Because what we find out in this book is that we're a lot more similar than we are different. And you can see these star knowledges that have such remarkable similarities all around the world going back thousands of years. So that's what I'm really hoping that um, the public understands and, and gets out of this book. As far as stuff keeping, you know, keeping our eyes on, there's always new stuff coming out. Just this week, colleagues of mine and myself in, in psychology have just published a paper in Psychological Sciences addressing the question of why, why is that the case? Why are similar groups of stars seen in such remarkably similar ways by cultures spread across space and time? Yep. And we used perception studies in mathematical psychology. Try to answer that question. And I've got another paper that's coming out soon looking at how old some of these star traditions are. And we've got definitive star traditions from Tasmania that go back at least 12,000 years, yep. talking about when Canopus was a very bright southern star close to the South Celestial Pole. There's always groundbreaking research coming out in this area, of course, with the elders and the knowledge holders as authors, as always always new stuff coming out, always things to help challenge what we think we know about science and astronomy. So if you want to learn more about any of that, you can always visit our website at www.aboriginalastronomy.com.au.
0: Excellent. Go there. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Dwayne Harmarker. On behalf of all our listeners, It's been really fabulous to be speaking with you. Thank you, especially for your time. You've got an amazing schedule. You're very generous. And those on social media should also follow Dwayne's Facebook feed. That's spelt H-A-M-A-C-H-E-R. You can find him on Facebook. And you can also check out at Indigenous Astronomy on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram. and. Do get the book. It is phenomenal. The First Astronomers, How the Elders Read the Stars. Congratulations on all your work, Duane. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me
1: on, Brendan. I really appreciate it.
0: And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to rami mandal at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro blogger website. And in two weeks' time, we'll have Ian back again to give us his April sky guide. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio right Wave!